L3 Harris's state-of-the-art sensing, connectivity, data fusion, and effects provides a foundational element to JADC2. Our system of systems architecture is platform agnostic, data-centric, and software-defined, capable of hosting third-party applications and retrieving open-source data. Learn more about how L3 Harris enables all domain operations across the joint force at l3harris.com forward slash JADC2. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports JADC2 podcast sponsored by L3 Harris. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, joining us today for the first of six programs highlighting joint all domain command and control issues are Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Chris Darty, a a senior fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security, and Todd Harrison, the director of both the defense, uh, the director of both defense budget analysis and the aerospace security project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and I neglected to mention that Todd is a former airman, and Chris is a former soldier, having served in the Ill uh, illustrious uh, 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, each one of them have service-specific skills, but are also uh, cross-functional strategic uh, analysts. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Thanks, Vago. Thank you. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fink Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And General Motors Defense is our technology coverage sponsor. Uh, guys, uh, JADC2 is regarded as the Pentagon's top uh, priority to better interconnect uh, legacy and future capabilities to develop the integrated and game-changing warfighting uh, abilities across the force, uh, especially against great power competitors. But the question, uh, as always in these, right, the devil is in the details. It's a brilliant sort of broad concept, but the what is it has been changing over time. That's causing some confusion uh, on the on the hill. Uh, Brian, let me start off with you. You've done a whole series on a mosaic uh, warfare. You're familiar with the joint warfighting concept that's being uh, developed at the Pentagon right now. What's what's the problem we're trying to solve, and why is this program so important to try to solve it? Why is it so important that we get this right? Right. Uh, yeah, Vago. So there's a, a general problem that DOD is trying to solve and then a very specific one that they're trying to solve, which relates to the joint warfighting concept. So the general problem they're trying to solve is this decades long uh, challenge of being able to uh, interconnect and allow communications to occur between different parts of the force. Uh, even within each uh, service, there's a lot of communications challenges with, like you said, legacy and new communication systems. Link 16 has been around since uh, you know, the early or mid Cold War. Uh, we've got new communication data links that are incompatible with it. So that's a big challenge uh, that DOD has been trying to address, and JADC2 is a strategy for trying to address that. Um, that, of course, though, is, is, is going to always be a problem. Um, the specific problem that they're trying to solve here is one re that relates to how the military is going to fight in the future and some of the shortfalls it has today. So the idea of a kind of large-scale attrition fight where the U.S. military dominates its opponents like we did in Desert Storm or in uh, OIF and OEF, that that those days are gone, you know, so against China, uh, the US military is going to be up against a peer competitor with the ability to adapt and uh, be able to you know, counter most of uh, the US military's efforts to prevent Chinese uh, troops from gaining their, their objectives. So we're going to come more creative to be able to win against an opponent like a China. Um, and that gets to the joint warfighting concept and the emphasis on getting decision superiority, uh, being more adaptable, 
being more innovative, being more creative, uh, and imposing some complexity on an opponent. So if you're going to uh, take an approach that's going to focus more on maneuver than on attrition, like the joint warfighting concept appears to be doing, um, you're going to need a, a way of managing the force in, in communications and in command and control that's different than what we do today. So you're going to need decision support tools that allow you to form courses of action rapidly um, that are maybe going to give you a temporary advantage over your adversary and drive him into some dilemmas that prevent him from being successful. So it's much more of a uh, defensive approach uh, than you might have if you were, you know, say, trying to take over Iraq. Uh, but that specific problem is one that demands a new approach to command and control and communications. And that, that's one of the things that JADC2 is really trying to provide. And, and obviously, we want to try to do this in an electromagnetic, a contested electromagnetic environment, right? We're, we're not going to have the ability to uh, be able to communicate uh, as fluidly and, and easily. Todd, let me bring you into the, in, into the discussion. Uh, David Goldfein, the former chief of staff of the United States Air Force, was uh, one of the leading theoreticians and advocates of, of this uh, idea, one of the reasons why uh, then Defense Secretary Jim Mattis thought he would make a great uh, candidate for chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff because he did have this sort of integrated uh, vision. Where are, what, what is JADC2? Uh, because one of the questions is that the definition and the what it is has been changing. And as a consequence is, is making lawmakers support difficult. What, what is JADC2? What does JADC2 need to be? And how does it need to be defined? if it's going to be a success, because you pointed out during our budget conversation a couple of uh, weeks ago that the definition of it was actually really problematic. And a friend of mine on the Hill contacted me after that, no noting how on the mark you were in terms of the criticism. Yeah, no, I think that has been a, a real problem right now. And it's not just the military communicating with Congress. It's the military communicating within itself with the services, in some cases, kind of talking past each other uh, about what it is they're trying to build. Uh, so I would first start off by saying, you know, JADC2 is supposed to be the battle network of the future, the thing that connects all of the different parts of our force structure together so they can be integrated and work together uh, in the future. Uh, and that has tremendous operational uh, advantages. The second part of it is you, that's got to be a resilient battle network because, as you said, it's going to come under attack. Uh, and we see the, the, the threats, especially electromagnetic threats, are proliferating. Uh, so it's got to be something that can you know, be defendable, be resilient in the face of an adversary that is trying to dismantle it. Second main point, though, is it is not a single network. You should think of it as a network of networks. Um, it is not as if we're going to put everyone, you know, on one big network that inherently is going to be vulnerable. It's got to be something that will degrade gracefully, that can break into sub networks as necessary um, and reconnect to larger networks as opportunities present themselves. Uh, so it's got to be very dynamic, uh, reconfigurable. Um, and, and so you can't just think of it as one master network that everyone plugs into. This is not the gig, the global information gig, grid. <laughs> uh, this has got to be something that is more modular uh, that can be pieced together over time. Now, you know, in terms of then defining, well, okay, well, what specifically are you going to buy? right to build this out this network of networks i actually have a paper coming out within the next week or so 
and I try to define this uh, as you know the battle networks of the future is having five different functional elements. Uh, and I will confess, I am borrowing uh, from the work of people like Brian Clark and John Stillian <laughs> uh, back when they were at CSBA uh, and Chris Doherty and some of the recent stuff he's written as well. Um, but the way I frame it is, you know, the five functional elements that make up a battle network are the sensor element, uh, the communications element, right, that, you know, passes all the data, the processing element, uh, data processing, which is often overlooked, but a very important part of the network, the decision element where you're actually making uh, decisions. And that's, of course, where you can plug in uh, autonomy and AI systems. Uh, and then the effects element, uh, that's where you actually put fires on a target. So those are all the different functional elements uh, that make up your battle network. And you know, what they're trying to do is figure out an architecture, a way forward, where they can get these things plugged in together, integrated uh, more seamlessly uh, than you know, is currently available. The, only, the last point I'll make here in defining it is you can't think of JADC2 as being a brand new network um, that we're just going to you know, create out of whole cloth it inherently has to be backward compatible. It has to include all of our legacy systems somehow or another, uh, because for the foreseeable future, the vast majority of our force is going to be made up of these existing systems, these existing platforms that we already have. So if we're gonna make this effective, make it work in the future, we've got to be backward compatible. Um, Chris, let me uh, bring you into the conversation. Uh, by the way, great um, piece. Uh, recently on War on the Rocks on uh, Navy strategy. So you are uh, a truly joint um, military thinker. Um, talk to us a little bit about the trick of getting this right, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's about delivering the right effects in the right way by marshalling the capabilities we have. But we've seen a lot of inner service uh, strife. The Army uh, has been working and has an agreement with uh, the Air Force. Uh, there's been a little bit of inner service concern about the Air Force uh, leading this. The Navy is sort of off doing its own uh, thing, as, as the Navy often does, and says, well, you know, we'll sync up with you guys later because we're doing our own uh, stuff. From, from your standpoint, what are the outstanding issues that need to get resolved from a leadership perspective? Because I think you know, whether it's our sponsor or any one of a number of other companies that want to work this, they're happy to work it as long as there is a, a sort of a clearly defined thing we need to do. What's the hard work that has to happen to make sure that everybody's on the same page on this? Because it's not abundantly clear that the services themselves are on the right uh, page. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Fago, which is that there isn't uh, a clear agreement across every service or even within each of the services about exactly what this concept is going to be and how it's going to be implemented inside their particular area. Um, and I think, you know, Todd alluded to this. And I think if you look at the budget documents um, in the FY22 uh, budget request that comprise what you're talking about when you talk about JADC2, it, there isn't a program you can go to and say, well, that's JADC2. It's a whole suite of programs parceled out uh, across every sort of budget line item across different colors of money, different services, different pockets here and there. And you could try to stand back and try to get a whole picture of it, um, but ultimately it, it loses coherence as you do that. And I think that is indicative of where this concept is right now. It's still in the conceptual phase. I think what Brian and Todd have described in theory at a conceptual level uh, makes a whole lot of sense. 
uh, although I think there are, there are holes in it, which I can talk about in, in, in a brief moment. But it's when you actually move from this, this concept, this architecture, um, that people like, like Preston Dunlap, um, who's the chief architect of, of the advanced battle management system for the Air Force, which is the Air Force major component of JADC2, you know, when they talk about that, that all makes sense. But then when you start parsing it out into real actual programs inside the services, and you get into things like waveform differences and cryptography differences and, and, and different kinds of preferences for certain um, uh, frequencies in which they operate. And then you get into further the different ways in which different services exercise C2 down even to the functional level of what kind of radios you're carrying. And one of the examples I'll use, because I'm a former uh, ground person and when I was in the ground forces, um, I was a radio telephone operator, what we, you know, RTO, uh, what we used to call it kind of anachronistically. Um, but, you know, the army has- The number one of... guy everybody else was shooting at. Uh, oh yeah. Um, so the, <laughs> the army has hundreds of thousands of radios, um, if not more. Um, I, you know, I, I shudder to think about how many actual radio terminal units that the army has. And, and the same thing goes for the Marine Corps relative to its size. Um, whereas the, the Air Force and the Navy may have many, many, many like orders of magnitude fewer actual radio systems they have to they have to link into this network of networks. So when you think about it from that perspective, the Army and the Marine Corps are going to inherently have some different perspectives on how to do wide, large scale network integration of command and control um, because of that. And then in addition to that, operating in the ground environment because of the clutter of things like terrain and trees and buildings and you know, interference from things like Wi-Fi and cellular towers and 5G, all that stuff impacts how the Army thinks about, and, and the Marine Corps, as well as Special Operations Force, how they think about communications in a way that perhaps is not as impactful for the Air Force and the Navy who are operating out in relatively more open, less cluttered operating environments. So that's just one example of the ways in which the execution of JADC2 once you actually get down, once you move from the concept down into the programs, is going to be different across all the services. And I think there's nothing we can do about that. In fact, I think that has to be how it is. The Army is going to have different requirements for what it wants to do than the Navy, than the Air Force, than the Marine Corps. And that's okay. The whole point of the, the, the network of networks that Brian and Todd are describing is that it needs to be able to translate data seamlessly between those different kinds of networks. And it's that translation function um, what I've called in my paper sort of a Rosetta Stone network or a universal translator for data. That is what they're trying to build into this open systems architecture because that's what's going to be needed to translate between old data links like link 16 or link 11 and new data links like Mattel or, you know, Mattel or the, 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 uh, the, um, the follow-ons to Mattel that could come for, for future weapon systems. Those all are going to have to be able to pass data seamlessly back and forth between them. Um, but you're not going to suddenly go to the army and say, okay, hey, army, you're going to have to buy you know, a whole new million, you know, soldier uh, rifleman radios, because they're just going to say, no, that's impossible. We can't do that. And then I think the other big gap that we see here when it comes to Jazz 2 is, is moving beyond the purely technological and getting into the non-material solutions that are required to exercise command and control in highly contested environments. And that's, I think, where a lot of the rubber is going to meet the road, quite frankly. And I think that's the part of the Jazz 2 concept that I see underdeveloped. It's the things like organizational constructs, the things like training, the things like actually putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to doing things like mission command. Um, those are the kinds of things that I think are going to be critical to actually enacting joint all domain command and control in the context of a conflict with China or Russia. Um, but we don't, we don't see that quite yet, because I think in many ways, we're still in the experimental phase when it comes to technology. 
Um, and, and, uh, and we are doing a little experimentation, but I would submit uh, not as much. I also commend our audience to check out your paper. And I think you've done um, at least two events, if memory serves correctly, right, Chris, that folks can check out on YouTube uh, and on the or through the CNAS website, correct? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be happy to share those links with you. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the idea here being that we're in what I call a long-term technocognitive confrontation with China and Russia. Um, and JADC2 has got to be a part of that, but it's only sort of one technological piece of it that comprises a much larger confrontation that we're going to have to deal with if we're going to do what the, the 2018 National Defense Strategy says, which I, I strongly believe in, which is maintain an information advantage in both peace and war. Um, uh, uh, Brian, let me uh, come to you because I want to get to this uh, notion of how we communicate and communicate in communications and uh, denied environments and and uh, with electromagnetic interference. And Todd, I want to ask you a little bit about the space element of this, right? I mean, now we have a space force and a lot of these uh, capabilities are the ones that are going to be contested in space as well as kinetically. But Brian, what's the Navy's approach and the Navy's reticence to becoming involved in uh, this program in a strategic sense, because um, you know the the original architects of this did see this as each of the services kind of getting to the table, working through some of these harder issues. As Chris, I think, rightly said, the the challenge, you know, the the Air Force, the the way the Air Force looks at the the world and the way the Navy looks at the world is different from how the Army and the Marine Corps uh, look at it. From, from your perspective, what's the Navy's plan to make this work? So, you know, uh, because it's, yeah. it's impossible for the Navy, because everything is going to be centered around the Navy and the Air Force forward in the Pacific, where they may be the, the more dominant arms, but the Army and the Marine Corps are going to be equally critical in, in prosecuting any Pacific campaign. Right. Uh, so there's a couple elements to this. Uh, so one is... Um, the, uh, to talk about you know, information advantage in a contested environment. Um, we did a report a couple uh, months ago for DARPA looking at uh, C3 requirements for JADC2 or for uh, decision-centric warfare. Uh, and uh, the challenge you have is that you're gonna have to rely on command and control tools and decision support tools to make up for the fact that you're not gonna have the ability to communicate widely or with headquarters when you're out here uh, in some of these disconnected areas where mission command will be relied on rather than uh, having the uh, 8,000 mile screwdriver you know, coming from uh, Makalapa in Pearl Harbor. So uh, the, the reliance on command and control tools will be something that JADC2 is gonna depend on. They've done some work along those lines, but as Chris said, that work has not progressed nearly farly enough, farther enough, far enough to compensate for the communication challenges that we're gonna face in any campaign against a pure competitor uh, because the electromagnetic spectrum is gonna be so challenged. But we, we've done some research on that, how that would happen. Um, now to the Navy's uh, issues, uh, the Navy is pursuing its kind of own communication architecture to support uh, field, you know, uh, fleet units. Um, that's gonna combine CEC or cooperative engagement capability um, that connects uh, Aegis ships with E2 Delta uh, airborne early warning aircraft and then a growing number of other uh, platforms including the IVCS, uh, the Army's battle command system for uh, integrated air missile defense. Um, they're going to combine CEC with Link 16 and with TTNT to kind of form a uh, consolidated, uh, federated communication architecture for the Navy. And for that reason, the Navy kind of feels like it's got this way of managing communications among the fleet 
um, that they can then you know, go back and link using link 16 or one of these other links to communicate with the rest of the force. But they feel like the Navy units are oftentimes on their own out there uh, operating as a unit. And therefore they've got this uh, effort that they've been undertaking for at least a decade now. And they feel like that's, that's gonna uh, stand them in good stead that they should you know, focus on that instead of trying to then join up with this broader communication architecture right away, which will probably get bogged down in various joint you know, interoperability issues. Todd, what's the Air Force's vision on this, right? I mean, the services wanted to be in the lead on it. Uh, obviously, each of the services has their own uh, vision on how they want it to go. At least we have an agreement between the Air Force and the Army uh, on this. Uh, and it's also very positive that the, the, the Navy is working, at least on the air and missile defense part of it, to integrate uh, with, uh, with, with the Army. What's, what's your sense on what the Air Force's vision for this is and where the service wants to take the discussion? And, and also where and how does the Space Force fit into it? Yeah, so you know, on the first part of that, um, the Air Force is supposed to notionally have the lead uh, on JADC2 and, and developing the path forward. And the Air Force's program to implement JADC2 is the Advanced Battle Management System, ABMS. Uh, and if you look in the Air Force's budget uh, justification documents for this year, if you look up the, uh, the program element line for ABMS funding, the very first sentence in the description uh, says that ABMS is the top acquisition priority for the Air Force. That is a big shift for probably a decade now. Uh, the Air Force has been saying its top three acquisition priorities have been aircraft, F-35, KC-46, and more recently, the B-21. Uh, now they've shifted. Uh, they've said ABMS uh, is the top acquisition priority. Yet they cut the funding for it uh, by a little more than half of what was previously planned for FY22. Um, so I think that reflects the fact that you know, the Air Force is having to take a new look uh, and refine their approach going forward. So a lot remains in, uh, up in the air about this. And then, you know, as, as others have discussed, uh, the Army and the Navy are, have got their own programs, doing their own things. And the Army has been publicly uh, saying, you know, the Air Force and ABMS uh, may very well go out and develop a network that works quite well for uh, a few thousand aircraft. Uh, but uh, that may not be the right network uh, that we need or the architecture that we need to connect, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, pieces of ground equipment. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's some lingering issues there. And I think that's something that OSD is going to have to address one way or the other. Now, in terms of how the Space Force plays in that, we don't know a lot, a lot yet. They haven't said much. Um, but you know, a lot of the parts of this future battle network and the battle networks that we have today, uh, they either run through space or they are enabled by space. Uh, so in many ways, I think the Space Force is going to be front and center and making sure that we build uh, this interoperable and resilient architecture in the future. Uh, a lot of the, the sensing elements are going to have to come from space. We're not going to be able to do uh, as much from the air uh, and you know contested air environments in the future. And a lot of the communications are gonna have to come from space. They just have to be built uh, on more resilient architectures uh, that are actually designed to be defendable against the types of threats we're, we're seeing in space. Um, Chris, um, you know, I wanna get your 
sense, you know, you you broached the idea of of needing to think differently and and talking about mission command. Um, ultimately, I, I remember a conversation. This is now going back almost three decades ago when the when the U.S. Army was talking about digitization. Major General Sir Charles Vivian uh, was uh, the British Defense Attaché to Washington, and and his point was, you know, I mean, ultimately, it's this, you know, as it was going to be when we were at MCON Alpha during the Cold War, this will be on soldiers initiative, mission command, soldiers with grease pencils, maps and their weapons achieving objectives. I mean, I don't want to boil this down too far, uh, but there are stories from each of the military services about how um, we would operate and operate relatively effectively um, but on mission command, right? How, how do we need to think differently about the problem? How much of it is a technological solution? How much of it is the smart use of advanced technology backed with some good old fashioned warfighting techniques that maybe we over two decades of uh, counterinsurgency warfare and the kind of post-Cold War American hegemony, uh, you know, we, we forgot that other people can interfere with your comms. You hit the nail on the head at the end there, Vago, which is a combination of smart technology investments and reasonable technology investments with um, good old fashioned warfighting tactics, techniques and procedures. Uh, when it comes to the technology side, um, I think you know we can talk all we want about resilient architectures and defensible architectures and this, that and the other. And I think those are all things that we should certainly invest in. Uh, I wouldn't advocate for a moment that we not in invest in those. Um, but what I will say is that uh, given the investments that China and, and Russia have made and how central taking away those architectures, disrupting them, degrading them, exploiting them is to the Chinese and Russian way of war, we should anticipate that those networks will be heavily degraded, heavily contested. Um, I wouldn't ever go so far as to say denied because I think it's very hard. The electromagnetic spectrum is a very large place. Um, but with that being said, we should anticipate those networks being heavily degraded. And so what we ought to do is design a network architecture around the idea of degradation. And, and I think what you see Brian and, and Todd and I discussing is a network that looks like that with a, with a topography where when one critical node in space goes away or becomes heavily contested or heavily degraded, the rest of the, the chunks of the network operate pretty well. Um, they, they might not have the perfect global connectivity that they did before, but perhaps they have good enough regional connectivity. Um, they might not be an overarching sort of, you know, total Uber network, but they, they, they're good enough for what they need to do. And then behind that, we need to have forces and personnel that are trained and ready to operate in the event that those networks are not functioning the way they anticipate, in the event that their decision support technologies aren't, aren't functioning the way they anticipate, in the event that, you know, the cyber attacks that they're under um, compromise their ability to do command and control the way they would have in peacetime. Uh, and I would argue that we have really lost that. Uh, we ran a war game series recently in which uh, we used virtual war gaming um, to selectively manipulate the communications capabilities and the, the, the sort of battle space pictures available to the players inside the game. What we found was that even though we specifically told the players, exercise mission command, you know, use the commander's intent and go off and, and execute based on that intent, their first reaction, the instant their communications went down, was to try to reestablish communications as fast as they could uh, and not, in their limited period of time, go out and fight the adversary based on the commander's intent. And I would argue that's a natural outgrowth of living for the last 20 years at the end of a 10,000 mile screwdriver 
wherein you know a commander in the rear is in their cockpit, is over their shoulder, yeah, you know, in the combat information center, is, is sitting behind them, you know, in the turret of a tank, telling them what to do or how to do it using a drone feed or, or whatever they have. That whole mindset has to go away and stop um, because it's just not going to be feasible in the conflicts in the future. Um, but it's going to be very difficult after 20 years of people becoming accustomed to that level of constant connectivity, to that level of constant command oversight for, for junior officers and junior enlisted or in senior enlisted to go off and say, look, we are, we, we, we've got your intent. I, I'm not going to be able to talk to you for the next you know, 48 to 72 hours. Let me go execute my task and my mission based on what you told me to do. Um, that's, that's very different for most of the joint force. They're small pockets of the joint force, I would argue, still operate that way. Um, in deference to Brian, I will say the submarine communities most definitely still operates that way. Um, the special operations community still has a bit of that ethos to it. But, you know, we talk about this as a joint thing, and I would argue it's, it's most definitely not widespread across the joint force at all. Todd, um, let, let me go to you, and we'll wrap up uh, in a moment with uh, Brian. What's your sense in how, what has to happen for this to be a success? and how the Air Force will have to change in order to try to make it so. I think uh, OSD has got to come out uh, and clearly establish a lead uh, or leads for different parts uh, of JADC2 and building this, you know, the battle networks of the future. Uh, I think it, it requires a roles and missions discussion. And then I think it requires a, a lot of strong leadership uh, in OSD to back that up and to force those decisions uh, in the program review each year. So they're looking at the budget and who's funding what. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's any way around that if we you know, continue to muddle along uh, with each of the services, you know, kind of looking over their shoulder, but ultimately doing uh, things independently, uh, and then we are gonna, we are gonna have a, a network in the future uh, that is much like we have today, where a lot of things just don't connect uh, and it's not very resilient. And, you know, we are going to be, you know, at a significant disadvantage uh, going forward because of that. Brian? Uh, yeah, I agree uh, with Todd that OSD needs to step in. I think, you know, some of the choices that OSD is going to have to make, though, in a relatively constrained budget environment are we're going to have to uh, focus on uh, some of the command and control sides of this rather than the communication side. We can dump untold amount of money trying to create a resilient communication network uh, and never really achieve it. We're going to have to instead rely on better command and control to be able to manage situations where you're unable to get the kind of communications that we've all you know, pursued through various efforts, including network-centric warfare. So uh, I think you know, we need to, to focus the, the, the investment on the command and control tools, as Chris said, on the training and the preparation for operators. Uh, and then to a degree, we've got to you know, prepare um, command commanders to be able to manage these operations uh, in an environment where they're going to have to build, you know, kind of compose the force on the fly. You know, so part of what JADC2 is supposed to enable is this more flexible, adaptable force. Uh, and I think that's going to require combat commanders to be equipped with some of the things that they've talked about in their deterrence initiatives, uh, which are, you know, infrastructure, logistics, you know, training in the field, uh, because that's going to be essential to make JADC2 a success, uh, more so than the communication networks that DOD has been, you know, focusing its efforts on thus far. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I think we just lost Todd, but thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you very much, Learn more about how L3 Harris enables all domain operations across the joint force at 
l3harris.com forward slash jadc2.